Hello, everyone. It is so very good to be with all of you this morning. I love this place. I'm thankful to God for this place and for how he continues to work in and through you on a local level and on an extra local level. It is good for my soul to gather with you this morning. I am very eager to get into God's word. Jared asked me to give a very brief update on Redeemer Fellowship, so let me do that very quickly this morning. Uh, first of all, let me say that Redeemer Fellowship sends their greetings and their love to all of you. Uh, I like to say that Covenant Fellowship is, is really a household name at Redeemer Fellowship. Even for the many people who have never even been in this building, they, they know of you and they love you and they thank God for you because of your many investments into us. So they send their greetings to you. Second, I, I, I don't know if there's a better way to update you on how we are doing than just to say that we are really happy in the Lord. We, we are a happy, happy church. And it's because of the gospel. It's because of our dear Savior. We love celebrating him together week in and week out on Sunday mornings, in our fellowship groups, in our serving together. There's, there's just a lot of joy at Redeemer because of what God has done for us. We are a happy church. And, and that happiness leads us to enjoy so much life and so much ministry together. And so... The crew ministry, for example, the student ministry on UD's campus, it's just growing by leaps and bounds. And the members of our church who lead that are doing a fantastic job of investing in that way. We're about to have our fourth bridge course this April uh, after Easter. Many of our families are, are serving in foster care in a heroic way. Uh, we regularly partner with Sunday Breakfast Mission in Delaware and love doing that. Uh, our numbers do continue to grow, and as you know, yes, this past year we even bought 10 acres of land. But friends, these things are nothing compared to the joy of just knowing the Lord together. Uh, there have been many challenges along the way as well, many difficult situations that we have walked through. But the thing that I am most thankful for is the joy of our salvation and how much we celebrate it together as a church family. And I, I think our, our joy in him is, is, is what God is using to, to make connections to the community around us. Thankfully, the joy that we have is not just an internal Joy. God, God has been really good to allow us to minister outside of our walls. Recently, the state rep of our area contacted us and just said, personally, can you guys disciple me in my Christian walk? And so we're, we're meeting with him on a regular basis. We're the church that he calls whenever there's a need in our area. So there have been many opportunities for us to meet physical needs around us. Last month, the, the school that we meet in is called the Independent School. Um, they had a, a fairly difficult situation where one of their, their seventh grade students passed away. But we were so honored that the head of school called us and said, can you come in on Tuesday morning and just care for our staff? And it's just a group of unbelievers, people who do not know the Lord. But we were able to go in and just preach the gospel to them and encourage them in the hope that they could have in Christ. It's just wonderful opportunities like this. God continues to bring about conversions at Redeemer Fellowship. Men and women coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We're having lots of baptisms. It's just wonderful. The Lord has been so good. 
Uh, the leadership team does send their greetings to you as well. They are doing well, Jason and the Smiths and the Chapmans and the Lees and the Petites. They all send their greetings to you. Others in our church, like the Rudies and the Nottages and the Popes and the Tolls and the Stokashes, they send their love as well. God has done and God is doing great things. And we're very grateful to him and we're very grateful to all of you for having sent us out almost five years ago now. Praise God. If you have... Amen. Now the best part, if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2 at Redeemer, we just started a year-long sermon series in this remarkable book. It's the second book in your Bibles. Now we've already considered chapter 1 as a church family where we learned about the 400 years of slavery that God's people had endured. And then in the first 10 verses of chapter 2, we see the, the heroism of some amazing women of God and how they were used by God to preserve the lives of many young babies and Moses' life in particular, and how through sovereignly controlled circumstances and the courage of his parents, Moses was brought into Pharaoh's house as a little baby. Today we're going to consider the second half of this chapter together. And so let's begin by reading verses 11 to 25. It says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days... The king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Some of you may know that I, like many pastors, love to read 
books. I read lots and lots of books throughout a year. I like history. I like theology. I like many of the classics. There's just something about some of these timeless works of classic literature that have been written. Classic works such as Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You Will Go. My friends, this is a gem of a book. It is, it, amen, it is marked by the doctor's typical energy and unexpected turns. Each page, a new adventure in itself, poignant truth mixed with refreshing humor along the way. It is a masterpiece. I'm not sure if you've read this book because we do live in a woefully illiterate age in our day. But if you haven't read this book, let, let me bring you into the wonder of it all. This masterpiece begins with these words, which really can truly be compared with the opening lines of authors like Charles Dickens and Herman Melville. This masterpiece begins with these moving words. Congratulations. Today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. Don't you feel that in your soul? <laughs> but wait, there's more. He keeps pulling us into this world of amazement with these thoughtful reflections. He says, you have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own and you know what you know and you are the guy who will decide where to go. Now there are some theological concerns there with his anthropology, but you can't argue with the poetical brilliance. And then he continues to paint this picture of hope. He says, out there things can happen and frequently do to people as brainy and footsy as you. And when things start to happen, don't worry, don't stew. Just go right along. You'll start happening too. Oh, the places you'll go. You'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. Dr. Seuss is preaching this morning. He's promising great things. He's promising hope. But then with powerful literary foreshadowing, he acknowledges the reality of pain along the way. He says, wherever you fly, you'll be the best of the best. Wherever you go, you will top all the rest. But, then he says, except when you don't. Because sometimes you won't. I'm sorry to say so, but sadly it's true that bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. Can, you can get all hung up in a prickly perch, and your gang will fly on. You'll be left in a lurch. Life is not always easy. He says you'll come down from the lurch with an unpleasant bump, and the chances are then that you'll be in a slump. Church, does anyone feel as if they are in a slump during this season of your life? He says, and when you're in a slump, you're not in for much fun. Unslumping yourself is not easily done. Listen to what he says. You come to a place where the streets are not marked. Some windows are lighted, but mostly they're dark. A place you could sprain both your elbow and shin. Do you dare to stay, stay out? Do you dare to go in? Being in a slump is a hard and confusing place to be. He's, he says, you can get so confused that you'll start into race down long giggled roads at a breaknecking pace and grind on for miles across weirdish wild space, headed, I fear, towards a most useless place. And what is that useless place? He calls it the waiting place. 
the waiting place, the place where no one wants to be. He says, for people just waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the train to rain to go or the phone to ring or snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or a no. Is anyone waiting for a yes or a no from the Lord today? I'm just going to skip over the part about waiting for hair to grow. It's not important today. <laughs> he says, everyone is just waiting. Friends, according to Dr. Seuss, the waiting place is a bad place to be. And I think most of us would agree with him. No one wants to be in that place. In fact, on the very next page, it says, no, that's not for you. Somehow you'll escape all the waiting and staying. You'll find the bright places where boom bands are playing. Clearly, according to Dr. Seuss, we should try to avoid the waiting place at all costs. Just get out. But church, is it as easy as Dr. Seuss makes it sound? Can you and I just say, no, this waiting place is not for me, and just move on to something else? No, we can't. We really can't, can we? Waiting is hard. And oftentimes in this life, waiting is unavoidable. If it was avoidable, none of us would choose to wait. We would move on quickly. But, but in this life, we often wait because there is nothing to do but to wait. We can't change the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We can't force the, the situation to change. We can try to be faithful in the circumstances, but often the pain of them will not be any different. There is a lot of waiting represented in this room alone. Many of us today are in the waiting room of life. We are waiting for our marriage to change. We are waiting for God to give us a spouse. We're waiting for healing. We are waiting for a breakthrough in our career. We're waiting for our children to find clarity in life. We're waiting to escape from mental illness. We're waiting for chronic pain to come to an end. Maybe you are a student in high school and you're just waiting for the time when you're an adult and can make decisions for yourself. We're all waiting. We're all waiting and none of us like the waiting place. None of us want to be there, but yet here we are. Church, today we need to talk about waiting. We need to talk about how God's ways are not always our ways and his timing is not always our timing. And we can and we should be honest with him about the pain and the frustration of the waiting place. We can be honest with him, but listen, we must also consider how hopeful we can be because of the God who is active in our waiting. I don't know half of the pain and sorrow that some of you are waiting in, but here's what we all can know together this morning. We can know that no matter how much waiting we have done, no much, matter how much waiting we still will do, the one true and living God remembers us in our waiting. He remembers and he acts on our behalf. If you're taking notes, the main idea for our sermon this morning is simply this. In times of waiting, God always remembers. In times of waiting, God always remembers. We just have two points this morning. The first one is that we often wait. And the second one is that God always remembers. Let's begin with the first point. Point number one, we often wait. You and I do not live in a culture that is very fond of waiting, do we? Wait, waiting is not a popular thing for people around us. But no matter how fast your internet connection may be, no matter how instant your instant cart may feel, no matter how crazy it is 
that you can order something on Amazon at 9 p.m. and have it waiting on your doorstep at 6 a.m. the next morning. No matter how fast and convenient this world aims to be, waiting is unavoidable. As people, we will often wait. And it may not be for an Amazon delivery, but it will often be for your heart's desire or for your earnest prayers. Amazon cannot hurry up the will of God. Amazon cannot give you the spouse that you long for or take away your sickness or heal that relationship or give you the house that you have been praying for, the promotion that you have been working towards, or the ministry that you long to be a part of. There are certain areas of life that we simply cannot hurry along. And sadly, those areas are often marked with suffering and pain and difficulty and trial. But as we wait, we must remember that waiting is not uncommon for God's people. Now, it's not uncommon at all. In this fallen and broken and sin-sick world, waiting has been a constant experience of God's people from the very beginning. Look, look at our text today. We, we already know from the verses that come before it that the people of Israel have been stuck in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years! That's 20 generations of people, generation after generation. People have been born into slavery and grown up in slavery, had children in slavery. Their children have had children in slavery, and then they've died in slavery. They live their entire lives without obtaining what they hope for from God. Centuries of oppression of the worst kind. Their children are literally being hunted down by Pharaoh. They're not allowed to live as God called them to live. This is, this is severe suffering, and it is long waiting. And think about Moses himself. Now, these chapters are, are very, very fast-paced to read. We're, we're moving quickly from one event to the next as we read this. But if you notice the details of the text, you realize that in reality, this was not fast-paced at all. Look at verse 11. It says, one day when Moses had grown up. That might feel like a throwaway sentence, but think about what it means. Think about how long it takes for that little baby who was put in that basket and then found by Pharaoh's daughter. Think about how long it takes for that baby to grow into a full man. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, in his speech, says that Moses was 40 years old when this event happened in our, in our text today. And then we learn that another 40 years has gone by before the burning bush in chapter 3. So, so from the moment that Moses' mother puts him in the basket, entrusting him to the care and direction of the Lord, 80 years has gone by. 80 years. I just turned 40 last month. I can't imagine having spent my entire life in slavery and then thinking about spending another 40 years in slavery. But this is what the Israelites were enduring. They were waiting year after year after year after year with no changes to their circumstances. And church, it's so important that we see together that this sort of waiting, it's not uncommon in our Bibles at all. It's actually very common. See, the problem is that we often read our Bibles while only looking at the high points, at those mountaintop experiences, those big moments of, of deliverance and salvation, but we forget that there are thousands of years of waiting represented in these pages. Because of sin, this world is not as it should be, and so God's people often wait. Abraham and Sarah 
They received a promise from God that they would have a son, a child that they longed for. But it wasn't until so many years later that God answered that prayer. Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah and Elizabeth, all godly women longing for a child to be given them in their barrenness. Jacob was mistreated by his uncle Laban and had to wait 14 years. Joseph was sold into slavery and then sat in a prison cell, wrongly accused for years. Nehemiah and Daniel waited in exile for many years with the people of Israel. The psalmist regularly says, how long, O Lord? Psalm 63, he says, save me, O God, for the waters have have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come in deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. He says, I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Church, we will often wait. And it's not a pleasant waiting, is it? Our eyes often grow dim while waiting. Certain kinds of waiting is not bad. I'm a fairly impatient guy, but certain kinds of waiting are not bad. If you go to a wedding and then you go to the reception before the reception begins, there's the cocktail hour. Usually I hate waiting for dinner, but I don't mind that waiting at all. Why? Because there's bacon-wrapped scallops (laughs) being served, right? I just, you take your time with those pictures, I'll be over here by the hors d'oeuvres. Certain waiting is not bad, but friends, that is not the kind of waiting described in our Bibles or in this text. It's not pleasant. It's very unpleasant. There are so many words in our text today that speak of the the severity of the waiting. Verse 11, we see the words burden and beating right away. Those are suffering words. Verse 13, we see the word struggling. Verse 14, we see the presence of fear. Verse 15, we see Pharaoh wanting to kill Moses. Verses 16 and 17, these ladies are driven away by cruel and abusive men. When, when Moses and Zipporah give birth to a son, they name him Gershom because he is a sojourner in a foreign land. To be a sojourner is not a great thing. It's not a place of rest. It's not a place of belonging. It's not a place of having a home. Verse 23 says that during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel, listen to this word, they, they groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Friends, this is severe suffering. This is hard waiting. This is not easy. This is waiting with groaning and weeping and lamentations. And listen, it's not just from oppressors outside of us. Did you notice in verse 13 that the Hebrews are fighting between themselves? That's a sign that our suffering not only comes from outside of us, sometimes it comes from within us. Our own sin is at work within us. We need salvation from without and from within. The the suffering is common among all God's people, not, not just in the Bible, but, but in the church and in our lives today. We're all waiting, either from without or within. And oftentimes we can feel alone in our suffering. Oftentimes, oftentimes we can begin to, you know, play the comparison game and say, how come my waiting feels this way and their, feel, their waiting looks that way? You know, I was at the dentist with my family a couple weeks back, and, and we did all of our appointments, and then we left. And then I, I told my kids, my dentist was so much better than our dentist when I was a kid because the waiting room had stuff to do. There were books, and there were magazines, the highlight magazines with the, the picture finder things, and there were puzzles to play and, and things to watch. 
not in our waiting room at the dentist today. There's nothing. There's only soap operas on the screen. It's a terrible waiting experience. But as I was thinking about it, I realized there really is no good waiting at the dentist, right? No offense, Rob. I'm sorry. I mean, you're at the dentist. You're in a room waiting for your name to be called so that they can torture you for 30 minutes. There's no great waiting at the dentist. Friends, we can often look around us and assume that everyone else has a better waiting room than we do. God gave them magazines. God gave them games and puzzles to play with. We have the days of our lives on repeat over and over again. Why? But it's good for us to acknowledge that all of God's people will often wait, and it's always painful. Other people's waiting may look different than ours at different ways, in different ways and at different times, but they're still likely longing for something just like we are. We're still fighting for faith together. Church, what is it for you? Is it waiting for an adult child to suddenly turn to Jesus, to bend their knee, to submit their lives? Is it waiting to be free from alcohol and from drugs? Is it waiting to not have to go to sleep wondering if you're going to get that call about that loved one who happened to overdose? Is it waiting for your financial situation to change? Waiting for financial stability, but it continually eludes you. Is it waiting for your reputation to be restored? Have you been gossiped about? Have you been slandered? Have you made mistakes, real mistakes that people no longer trust you because of, and you're waiting to earn their trust back? Are you waiting for your unbelieving husband or unbelieving wife to turn to Jesus? You feel alone in the home. You feel alone in your suffering. Are you waiting for the time when you don't pick up your phone or turn on the TV any longer to find out about more violence around us? Are you waiting to be free from sexual temptation? Are you waiting to be free from same-sex attraction and the torment that that is for your soul? Dear friends, in this fallen world, we will often wait, and we will often wait a long time. We will feel forlorn, forgotten, and forsaken. We will feel invisible to the world around us, and we will even begin to believe that we are invisible to God himself. The enemy of your soul will begin to whisper to you that God does not hear you, God does not see you, that God does not know about you, that he does not care. But church, that is when we must Allow God's precious and authoritative and inerrant word to speak unshakable truth into our lives. Why? Because though we often wait, our God will never forget. Amen. That brings us to our second point. Point number two, God always remembers. Have you ever been ghosted by a friend? It's the worst. None of us like to be ignored, particularly when we're in a time of need. And so you send that text message, you pour out your soul, you ask for support, you ask for prayer, and then there's no response. Why aren't you responding? Just acknowledge that you got the text. You can even see the, the red receipt on the text message. I know you read it. How come you're ignoring me? None of us like to be ghosted. None of us like to be ignored or forgotten, particularly when we are in need of help. But isn't it true that in times of waiting, it can feel like God himself has ghosted us. We can feel like he's forgotten, that he's ignoring us. We know he sees us, right? He's God. He sees everything. 
He hears us because he hears everything. There's a red receipt on the, the text of our prayers. He's heard our request. So why does he not respond? Why does he not answer? Why is he ghosting us? We can imagine that the Israelite people felt like God had ghosted them in the most severe way. 400 years of not hearing from God. 400 years did he block us. Did he unfriend us? Did he change his number? Where is he? But church, these chapters of Exodus are intended to remind us very clearly this morning that though in our waiting it may feel like God has forgotten us, he has not forgotten his people. No, he will never forget his people. He will always remember. But the problem is that we feel like he's forgotten us because we do not see his activity clearly and brightly on display in our lives. The, the waiting, the, the darkness seems to blind us to his activity. The waiting does not come to an end. And so it naturally feels like he must not care. He must not love me. But Christian, please hear this this morning. Please hear this loud and clear. Just because you cannot see God's activity in your life, that does not mean that he is not still very active in your life. Now we must not require visible demonstrations of his activity to believe that he is still very active. Now God's word tells us again and again and again that at times it is when God is least, seems least present that he is most active. Oftentimes when he seems farthest away and most distant is when he is nearest to us and most wisely and powerfully at work in our lives. And we can see it in the text today. Think about what we read or what the verses that lead up to this text. Moses' mother, by faith, puts little Moses in a basket to protect him. I am sure that that did not feel like God was very active. God, how come you can't just answer my prayer right now by crushing Pharaoh? By overturning that edict to kill all the little baby boys. Why do I have to go through this process, God, of, of trusting you by releasing what I want most in all the world, my little baby boy? There must have been such a, a tearing that happened in her heart. But she believed that God was active even in the tearing, even in the loss. And we know that he was. Consider what happens. Verse 11 again. One day when Moses had grown up. He grew up in Pharaoh's house. Stephen in, in Acts chapter 7 again says that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in words and deeds. Think about this. In God's providence and in his wisdom, he places Moses like a Trojan horse into the house of Pharaoh. Like an act of divine espionage, the future deliverer of God's people is planted into the house of the enemy. He, He's taught by Pharaoh. He's taught by the enemy. He's fed by the enemy. He's protected by the enemy. We assume that Moses is even loved and cared for by the enemy. God is undermining Pharaoh from right under his nose. He is toppling the kingdom from within. But you would not know it by looking at the situation from the outside, would you? No, from the outside, it looks only bad. Moses' mother is still without her son. She's still waiting. 
She's probably crying herself to sleep night after night, wondering how her son is. And then Moses, who's supposed to be the, the deliverer of God's people, he's driven away from Egypt. He's gone for 40 years. It seems like the plan has failed. But what appears to be the situation on the outside is emphatically not the situation within. God is doing something good for his people. He has not forgotten them. He is at work. Verses 11 to 12 says that Moses went out to his people and looked on their burdens. We, we don't know how Moses learned to identify with his people, the Hebrew people. We don't know if this was God speaking to him or if it was Pharaoh's daughter allowing his mother to stay in contact with him. And as a woman of faith, she discipled him and instilled in him a knowledge of his godly heritage. We don't know. But what we do know is that despite spending 40 years in the house of the most powerful man in the world, God instilled a different identity in Moses and eventually led him to act on it. Verse 12 says that Moses saw a Hebrew, one of his people, being beaten by an Egyptian. And what did Moses do? Well, he rose up to defend his brother. Now, this is not good. There's no godly way to look at this. Moses committed murder. This is not how Moses should have handled the situation. He is not a perfect man at all. But what we do see in this is that God had instilled a burden within, within Moses to be a leader, to be a protector. That leadership instinct needs to be grown and it needs to be sanctified by God. But it is from God. God put it there in him. And we can see it again when he flees to Midian, right? In verse 17, when these shepherds try to drive these seven ladies away from the well, what does Moses do? It says that he stood up and he saved them. That phrase, he, he stood up, it speaks of Moses' godly instinct to protect and to stand up for the oppressed. It speaks even in this season of waiting of how God was equipping him to ultimately stand up before Pharaoh. It speaks of God's heart to stand up for his people. God is not ghosting his people. He is at work even in unseen ways. Pharaoh finds out about Moses killing the Egyptian, and so he seeks to kill Moses. It's the death penalty for what he did, but Moses flees. And where does he go? He goes to the land of Midian. Midian was a descendant of Abraham, and so as we read the text, that should immediately tie us back into the lineage of God's people from the book of Genesis. Midian also is likely where Mount Sinai was, which will play significantly into the story later on. But even more than Midian... We see that when he goes to Midian, it says that he sits down next to a well in verse 15. Friends, that language should pop off the page at us. Back in Genesis, it is often at a well after a long journey that God acts on behalf of his people. Wells are a sign of life and security, but they're also a place in Genesis 24 and in Genesis 29 where God provided wives for Isaac and Jacob, ensuring that the line of Abraham would continue. So to sit down by a well here is significant, and we see immediately that the similar things begin to happen. God provides a wife for Moses. These are all whispers of God's providence. 
These are whispers that, that God has not forgotten his people. These are whispers, whispers that in our waiting, even while Moses is excluded and not accepted by the Hebrew people, and even as he is being hunted down by his adoptive family, even though he is alone, he, even though he is waiting, God is whispering, I'm here. I've not forgotten you. I'm working on your behalf, even in the unseen. Sometimes God's activity in our lives is veiled. It's hidden. It's, it's hard to see. But that does not mean that he is not present. He is always present, and he is always active. Look now at verses 23 to 25. Moses, the writer, ends this chapter by not focusing on himself, but rather focusing on God. Look at what it says in these verses. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Church, our God always remembers. We are called to pray in desperation, not because God forgets, but because he, he wants us to cry out to him and to express our confidence in his covenantal promises. When it says here that God remembered, it doesn't mean that he had ever forgotten. That word to remember, it means that he simply in this moment chooses to honor his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. The time had finally come for him to prove himself faithful. The, the people of, of, of God, they continue to cry out. They prayed. They, they groaned. Sometimes our prayers really are nothing more than a groan, aren't they? Sometimes we're so desperate and so beaten down by our circumstances that all we can do is groan in faith before the Lord. But because of his great mercy, because of his great grace, he hears even those groans. He receives those groans. He responds to those groans. Look at these words. It says that their cry for rescue came up to God. The way is open to him. It says that he heard. He's paying attention. It says that he remembered or honored his covenant. It says that he saw the people of Israel and that he knew. Do you feel unseen by God today? Do you feel like he does not know about your trial? He doesn't know about your situation, friends. He sees his people. He sees and knows where you are at. He sees you in the waiting room of life. He sees the pain. He sees the sorrow. He sees. He hears the groaning. He knows. You know, some of you have been carrying a burden that you have never felt comfortable sharing with anybody else in life. Something happened to you. Something very painful. It caused shame and grief in your world that you have never shared with any. It's too shameful to share. I can't share that with anybody around me. In that moment, God sees you. God knows you in that pain. You are not alone. This is glorious news. Verses 23 to 25 they are the writer's way of, of coming to us in the waiting room of life and lifting our eyes to heaven. Isn't it true that when we're in a waiting room waiting for that appointment, oftentimes our, our head is in our hands as we wait for the, the test results or wait for that next exam. This is the writer's way of, of lifting our eyes and saying, look with me at the God who keeps his word. 
I know that many days have gone by. I know that your waiting continues, but look with me. Look with me at the God who sees and knows his people. Look with me at the God who takes center stage at this part of the story and proves himself faithful to his people. Look with me at the God who is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. In our waiting, God always remembers covenant fellowship. The writer invites us to look to God, the God who hears, sees, and knows our suffering, who remembers his covenant with his people. And listen, as Christians in particular, the writer invites us to consider how God has been ultimately faithful to this covenant by sending his son into this world to fulfill his word. God sent his son Jesus as a little baby, just like Moses. He sent Jesus into the household of the enemy like a Trojan horse, a, a divine act of espionage. Jesus came into the darkness to live for us, to die for us, to redeem us. Je Jesus came. What did he do with us? He waited with us. He could have come and he could have conquered sin and death in a single moment, but he didn't. No, he lived among us for 33 years waiting patiently with us for the moment when he would die on that cross. He could have called a host of angels down to take him off of that cross in a moment's time, but he waited there hour after hour after hour. He could have never died at all, but he did die, and he waited lifeless in the tomb for three days Church, he waited with us. He groans with us. Hebrews chapter 4 says that he is tempted in every way as we are. He's not unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He knows how hard it is to wait. But he is the ultimate demonstration that God has heard our cry. God has remembered his covenant. He sees and knows his people. So that anyone who comes to him, anyone who believes in him today, though life may still feel like a waiting room for you, you can know that he is with you in that place and he will always remember his covenant to work on your behalf. In the midst of our waiting, God always remembers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for honoring your covenant. We thank you for never forgetting your people and for working on our behalf. We who could not do the work on our own, you have come and you have worked for us and we give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.